0: All right, so we're going to get started and we're going to continue working our way through uh, this summary of the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't been here um, for the study or you missed a week or two, we're just sort of pausing. You know, we've been in this study where we've been walking, I mean, really sprinting through the Bible, even though it says Session 35. It's been a, a really rapid pace that we've been keeping through the Bible, but we're trying to pause here in the Sermon on the Mount and just take some time to... Uh, to examine it more closely, it's like a little superhighway in here. Man. Um, so so we're just sort of trying to get a summary this week and then two weeks from now. Keep in mind, next week is uh, the first Wednesday of the month, so we don't meet together. And then the week following that, we'll wrap up the Sermon on the Mount. But it occurred to me uh, this, this afternoon as I was writing up my outline that I think that there's a good, like, teachable moment here When we transition from chapter five to chapter six, as far as just how you handle the scriptures, how you handle the Bible, you know your Bible is divided up, all of us know this, into chapters and verses. And so uh, those are good, those are references for us, those help us to be able to find things easily. But we know that really the chapters and verses in our Bibles were put there long after. Uh, the writers wrote these things. So the chapters and the verses in our Bibles appeared roughly about 600 years ago. That's when they first started to come about and be used. The problem is, even though they're good for reference, the problem is a lot of times in your Bible, what will end up happening is, is we, we will be reading through the Bible and we'll see a chapter break or a paragraph break or um, some type of header that, that announces something different is happening. And I feel like sometimes we can lose our train of thought, you know, we can lose the continuity of what's being said in the scriptures, like particularly here between chapter five and six. This is one of the spots in the scriptures where I really dislike the chapter division because I feel like it really does disrupt what Jesus is teaching us and it can cause us to kind of lose our way. Uh, And the reason I dislike it is because I feel like chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, and chapter 6 are almost just like one continuous thought, you know, one continuous teaching. And I want to share that to you. Remember last week I said there was a a key verse in chapter 5, and the key verse in chapter 5 is chapter 5, verse 20. I, I think that really is the key verse in the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, And he says, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, just by way of review, how did the scribes and the Pharisees um, sort of measure their righteousness? You you remember we talked about this last week kind of at length if you were here. They measured their righteousness, it, it was through outward appearances. Remember, that was their thing is religious duty, doing the things that you should do religiously. Like, if it was, if we were going to translate it into our modern day, we would say that the Pharisees were people who made sure they were at church 10 minutes early every time the doors were open. They gave their tithes. They made sure to sing the songs. They made sure to bow their heads. I mean, just all the right things. And these aren't wrong things to do, but they would have just made sure to do everything outwardly. You know? And Jesus condemned them for this in Matthew chapter 23. Let me read you a couple of these where he says, uh, they do, and he's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, you know, they sit on the seat of Moses, they teach you the law of Moses. So whatever it is that they're teaching you to do, do the things that they're teaching you, but don't do what they do he says, because they do, in Matthew 23, 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. That was the summary of the scribes and the Pharisees. They do everything they do because they want to be seen by others. Later on in that chapter, Matthew 23, verse 27 and 28, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. By the way, what, I mean, by definition, what's a hypocrite? Because he calls them this over and over again. He's gonna, we're going to see it tonight in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, a hypocrite is a person who said, who said, I'm not going to repeat that for the online audience. A hypocrite is the, the one who says they're going to do one thing and does something else, you know, or claims to do something and doesn't do it. So he says, you hypocrites, he says, you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. So there's this outward appearance of beautiful in your religious duty, but within you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you, are, you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so what Jesus is condemning in the Pharisees is this uh, outward religious appearance that isn't connected to a heart that wants to please God. And remember, that was everything I tried to argue for last week was that chapter 5 is really about the motivation of your heart. Jesus is talking about our heart, and the importance of having a heart that's concerned with pleasing God. If you're doing all this stuff just to do it, but your heart isn't motivated to please God, then everything that you're doing is empty. It won't be accepted by God. We see that all over the Scriptures. Now, we don't leave this behind in chapter 6. This is why I don't like the chapter division at chapter 6. I think it should have just been a long chapter 5. But We don't see it. We don't leave it behind in chapter 6. It carries right through in the beginning of chapter 6. So if you go there, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, and you can see this all over in everything that we're going to look at tonight. and Just kind of get the flow of thought, how it continues. He begins, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So he's just continuing the same discussion, right? Make sure your heart's right with God. Make sure the things that you're doing are motivated by a heart that wants to please God and not men. And he says, but beware of doing these things they just want to be seen and praised. And that just continues all through. You'll see it all through these in verse 5, for instance, leading up to the Lord's Prayer. And I think it's interesting that sometimes we isolate the what we call the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, however you want to define it. We isolate that as sort of like the, the big thing in chapter 6. But I think that the big thing in chapter 6 it's him continuing to teach us that you need to do things to please God and not men. Your heart has to be concerned with pleasing God and not men. As he introduces the prayer, he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be what? Seen by others. Same thing. Truly I say to you, they have received their rewards. So it's just the same Thing over and over and over again. He's warning us about practicing empty, external religion. You ever been guilty of that? I mean, come on, we've all been guilty of that, haven't we? Like, just empty, external religion going through the motions, and it doesn't end there. So I'm not going to deal with the, the prayer. You've probably had enough Sunday school lessons and Bible lessons on that over the years, but just keep on going with this thought. Look at verse 16, where he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. It's Like his favorite word for talking about the religious people. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be what? Seen by others. There it is again. Truly I say, they have received their reward. So it's still a matter of the heart. It's still the same thing. And then in verse Nineteen, He takes a subtly different direction. And that's where we're going to kind of try to focus as we move on past that initial argument. I think chapter 5 and all the way through until we get to verse 19, Jesus is just dealing with our heart. It's such an important thing for us to have our heart right with God, for us to serve with a heart that wants to please God, for us to be able to... Sing with a heart that wants to please God, for us to teach with a heart that wants to please God, you know one of uh the things that my dad told me real early on in ministry, which has helped me to endure all kinds of seasons of discouragement and everything else, is he says, Son, when you preach, and keep in mind when I was at my first church, like in the county that I lived in the I think the biggest church in our county, maybe I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm not wrong. I think the biggest church in our county, which was like a mega church in our county, had about 100 people in it, in the whole county. And so most of our church, and we were like a, a bigger church at a solid 38 every week. I mean, we were, we were killing it. If I walked out and saw the attendance board, Chuck, and it said 42. I was like, man, we crushed it today, you know? But I'm saying all that to say, like, the first couple years of pastoring, I was in a little, tiny church building preaching to little, tiny crowds and sometimes feeling incredibly discouraged. And my dad said to me, son, just remember, when you preach, just preach to Jesus. When you teach, just teach for Jesus. Just concern yourself with Him and, and everything else you do will follow. And I think it's so important for us... Always so easy to get discouraged in serving. It's so easy to get discouraged in, in doing the right thing or, or even in a worship service. But if we just focus our hearts on Jesus, everything else tends to be able to fall into the right place. So he does discusses that over and over again, trying to draw us away from external religion and point us back to the internal reality of our relationship with God. And then in verse 19... He takes sort of a new turn, and he turns his attention from the practice of religion really to the things that surround us in life, the possessions that we have in life. And this is a familiar, super familiar passage of Scripture. But in verse 19, if you're following along, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. I think verse 21, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, is important because here, once again, this continuity of thought, he's dealing with what? Our hearts, right? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. He's still dealing with the heart, but now he's going to deal at it with a different angle. Now he's, I think, more so dealing with your private life, whereas before he was dealing with your your public religious life. Now he's going to turn to your private life and the things that are important to you privately. And he says, he, he really warns us here in these passages against treasuring two types of things, really two uh, Big things here that he's talking about. Anybody want to take a shot at just what categories he's warning us about, treasuring in our life, what types of things? Material, material things. Yeah, broadly, I think, I think it's under, all under the umbrella of material things. In fact, I think really from here on out, we're going to deal with material things in the rest of this chapter. But more specifically, I think what he's warning us about first is treasuring perishable material things like which really i almost feel like that's redundant like i mean everything that's material is perishing right like even if you even if you don't know or can't see that it's perishing it's perishing like even at a molecular level the chairs that you're sitting in are perishing they're they're literally falling apart as you're sitting in them. You just can't see it because it's such a microscopic perishing. Everything is perishing, but he warns us about perishable things and he does it by using two important words where moth first of all destroys and how many of you worry about moths destroying your stuff? I don't worry about moths. I don't think any of you worry about Moths, I hate moths. I don't like moths, but I don't worry about them. But for these people, keep in mind that we're reading in the context of the first century, Jesus is talking to people, for them this would have been a big deal because one of the ways that these types of people measured wealth or stature was in the clothes and in the linens that they possessed. What's the greatest enemy of those type of things? Moths. And so he's saying, like, don't, don't value these, these things that seem to gain you status in this life. They're, they're perishable. You can hang them up and you can treasure them. And then you might go to check on them someday. You haven't seen them in a while. And the moths, while you didn't even know it was happening, have come in and destroyed. And it's all gone. And then he uses this word for some weird reason that's translated rust in the English Standard Version. I don't even know why because it's the word worm. I don't know why the English Standard Version and the others translated it rust. It's just the word worm. And it wouldn't have even made sense, really. It's one of those quirky things in our Bibles. But the principle is the same. Like when we think of rust, we think of what? Like something corroding away or, you know, sort of, we have this idea of corrosion, something that was good, and now it, it's been eaten away at by rust. What's well, the same idea here because another way that you measured wealth in those days was by storing up grain, storing up all sorts of um, um, things that you could harvest into your storehouses. And unfortunately, in those areas, they would have these worms that would burrow into these grain storehouses. And... Without you knowing that it was happening, they could get in there and they could just destroy everything that you stored. You couldn't see it happening. You didn't know it was happening, but it was sure enough happening. And so he's warning us about these perishable things, these things that just so easily, while we're not even noticing, perish. They're gone. Don't treasure these things. But then he talks about another uh, thing here. He says the thieves. There's a difference between moths and Worms and thieves. I think thieves speaks to you know the moth and the and the worm or the rust is something that happens over a period of time. It's just sort of happening behind the scenes. But a thief, how many of you ever been stolen or had a thief steal from you? Terry, I remember your truck being broken into and like, didn't you tell me your car got stolen once, Steven? Yeah, and I have a bunch of brothers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah. But a thief, when a thief comes, it's just sudden. And the thing that you possessed, it's not that it's less than it was, it's just gone. It's just suddenly gone. You don't have it anymore. And so he warns us about treasuring things that can be taken away. I remember we had a friend in North Carolina, it was a friend of Caitlin's, and we knew the family and we lived just right around the street from each other and and we lived in a really rural area out there and, and just um, tobacco and cotton fields and flat land. And we left one evening to go out and uh, ran, run to the store. It was about 20 minutes away. And then so we left, drove out the road to the store. Nothing was happening. We Went to the store just real quick, turned around. So maybe 30 or 40 minutes had gone by. And as we're driving along, we can see a glow, you know? You see a glow sort of heading towards the direction you're going, you think, "Man, what is that?" And as you get closer, you realize something's on fire. And as we got even closer, we realized that it was our friend's house that was on fire. And when we got there, I mean, by the time we got there, it was literally gone. It wasn't built very well, obviously. But In the span of, I mean, just think of this. In the span of 30 or 40 minutes, you go from everything you possess is fine. Everything's good. What happened was their son, I can totally relate to this now that I have a boy. Their son found a lighter and was lighting, you know, the, the fuzz that falls out of your box spring. He was just lighting that fuzz and letting it fizz up. Well, he hit one that was bigger than the others, and it just caught the mattress on fire. And before they could just make sure they were all all right, the house was engulfed and burned. But imagine that. In in 30 or 40 minutes, everything you own is gone. And that's exactly the image, I think, of the thief. It's not necessarily about an actual thief as much as it is just the things that can be taken away from you in the blink of an eye, just gone. And I also want to be clear that Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to have things. It's wrong to have nice clothes and linens and storehouses of grain and, and nice stuff. You know, he's not saying that. But what he is saying is that it's wrong to treasure those things above your relationship with your Father in heaven. That's the whole point here, not to treasure. Those things. And so this is really a statement of contrast, right? You see the contrast? He's just saying, he's not saying don't have these things. He's not saying that at all. He's just saying don't treasure these things. Instead, lay up your treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves not breaking the steel, for where your treasure is, there. Your heart will be also. So, really, we, we have a choice to make here. And this is a heart choice, which is why he ends with verse 21, which I'll touch on in a minute. But we have a choice to either value and treasure, which is really what treasure means, just to value something highly. So, we can value the, the temporary things that give us temporary joy and reward, or we can choose to treasure and value things that are heavenly and eternal, things that give us lasting and eternal joy and reward. And what would you rather have? I mean, just objectively speaking, do you want things that fade, that go away, that can be taken away? Or do you want things that can't be taken away? I mean, we all know objectively what the right answer is, right? But we struggle in this life not to fall in love with things. I love what... Uh, C.S. Lewis said on this, I love this quote, he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. He's talking about desires to have things that make us happy. He says, it's not that our desires are too strong, they're too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. In this life, these temporary things, these things that fade, these things that can be taken away, he says... Jesus says, don't treasure those things. And what C.S. Lewis is getting at is that if those are the things that we love and those are the things that we treasure, we're far too easily pleased because there's something much greater being offered to us. And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. So he concludes by saying, where your heart is or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think this verse is so important. I only have four and a half minutes left. So let me just say that if you read on the end of chapter 6, he teaches us about anxiety and worry. How many of you worry about things? All right, worry is a sin. Like, I just, like I, literally, I just feel like I should say that. You can go read it because if Jesus tells you not to do something, this is like one of the... We have unpardonable sins that we make or sins that we make unpardonable that aren't unpardonable. And then we have things that are sin that we decide aren't sin. It's really weird how we do that. But this is one of the things like I hope my mom's not watching, but my mom worries. She's always been a worrier. And I will say to her mom, you know, it's a sin to worry. It's a sin to worry. She says, I know it's a sin, but I just I'm going to worry. I have I'm going to worry. This is the weirdest thing that we excuse. And Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. I'm not going to read it all to you. Do not worry. He says specifically, do not worry. So Jesus says, do not be anxious. Do not worry. And then you become anxious over your life and you worry about your life. Are you sinning? If Jesus, I mean, apply that when we say, I know it's a sin. I know it says that, but I can't help it. Would we say that about like lust, murder? I know it's a sin to be an adulterer, but I can't help it. Like... See you at church on Sunday, you know? Like It's just like this flipping to Anyway, I'm getting off track, but just, we don't have time to do that tonight. But verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, I keep going back. Let me say one other thing about worry. Worrying is like the biggest waste of time. Jesus says it's a waste of time. You know why it's a waste of time? Because if you can change something, just change it. Stop worrying about it and change it. And if you can't change it, Stop worrying about it because you can't change it. So if you're worrying about it, you're torturing yourself for absolutely nothing. It does you no good to worry over anything. Verse 21, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. I think this is such an important verse that I don't have time to do a lot with right now. But I just want to say this because I think a lot of times we wish our hearts were in different places. You know what I mean? Like, I wish... I can remember thinking... I'll give you an example. I can remember being in a seminary. And I was at Southeastern Seminary, which is like... Terry's attending there now, so they've always hung their hat on being like the Great Commission School. And when I was there, everybody wanted to be a missionary. Like, you were almost like second-class citizen if you were going to be a pastor. I lived in a housing complex. Everybody there was a missionary. I was the only dude that wanted to go pastor a church. And I just remember thinking, like... And I wish my heart was like their heart, like wanting to reach the world with the gospel, because it really wasn't at that time. Like I always had a desire to preach the word, to see people come to Christ, to see people know Christ. But really this like reaching people of all nations, all tribes, all tongues for the gospel. That really wasn't where my heart was. And I'm sure you can relate to that in some aspect or another, missions or not. That's just my example. But there's something where you just wish your heart was in a different place. Now, I think what we can learn from this is that if you want to change your heart, I think we think this is the opposite. I think if you want to change your heart, change your treasure. You, you can choose the things you treasure. I know some things you just like, and you like them because you like them, but you can choose to treasure things, can't you? Like you can choose to go to an antique store. I don't care about anything about antiques. I could choose to go and buy an expensive antique. It doesn't really mean anything. doesn't really excite my heart, but I could choose to go buy something and put it in a safe place in my house and and treasure it and protect it and make sure. And I always imagine that if I did that, eventually I would start to, my heart would start to turn towards that object a little bit. If you want to change your heart, change what you treasure. And for me, you know what happened for me with missions, if I'm using that example? Is that I made a decision that based on my conviction about what the Bible said, that this was something I needed to treasure, needed to do, needed to get involved with. And as I did, and as I made a decision, a conscious decision to treasure it, my heart towards it changed. It became more important. So the things that you see deficits in your life over, the things that you think, I wish my heart was different towards that, choose to change your treasure and your heart will follow your treasure.